from Studio H3 in the Current Affairs World Headquarters, it's Current Affairs, your ear's greatest hour of politics and culture. Today on the program, the panel discusses what the end of racism and sexism might look like. Legal star Ian Samuel enters the lefty shark tank to pitch court packing. And we all share our favorite historical what-ifs. Our panel today, Current Affairs Social Media Editor, Vanessa A.B. Hi. Current Affairs Contributing Editor, Brianna Joy Gray. Howdy. Current Affairs Legal Editor, Oren Nimney. Hi, everyone. And the Editor-in-Chief himself, Nathan J. Robinson. Hello there. I'm your host, Pete Davis. Let's begin with segment one. What do we actually want? Sometimes we on the left think we know what we want, and the only thing stopping us is we haven't won power yet. But other times we don't yet know what we actually want. To remedy this, we present the recurring segment, What Do We Actually Want?, in which we dive into a divisive issue on the left and ask ourselves what we actually want. This week's topic, the end game of racism and sexism. When right-wingers aren't saying that racism and sexism are good, they're often saying racism and sexism are over. They ended when, say, women entered the workforce or when Obama became president. We know racism and sexism are not over, but here's one way we can call the right's bluff on this topic. We can answer the question, how will we know when they are over? Put another way, How do we measure racism and sexism? How do we measure the slow defeat of white supremacy and patriarchy? What does the racial and gender justice promised land look like? Panel, when it comes to racial and gender justice, in a very concrete sense, what do we actually want? So I think maybe before we begin, it's important that we like maybe draw a line between interpersonal racism and institutional racism, which I don't know if that means maybe we could use different words, even though we sort of both know that we're talking about like a similar strand of animosity towards someone on the basis of their anatomy or their gender or their ethnicity. But maybe if we use bigotry to talk about neighbors disliking other neighbors, you know, on the basis of like say sexism and racism, and then maybe using racism to talk about institutions and corporations applying their power in a way that is discriminatory. I think if we draw that difference, then the answer for one is definitely not. There will always be people who are straight up racist. And honestly, I don't care. That's fine. Um, (laughs) But I I think we have a little more hope when it comes to institutions, because we can like, look at processes, and we can look at patterns, and we can look at points where humans in those institutions have discretion to apply policies in ways that are discriminatory, and maybe pull back some of that discretion. You know, we have data that we can measure and well, I doubt that we'll ever be able to completely root it out just because discrimination isn't ov- always obvious to figure out. Like sometimes rules can look neutral or outcomes can look neutral and actually aren't. But it's like a, we just I, I think it's just more likely that we would be able to de- decrease the, the amount of 
disparate outcomes hmm. in institutions. Hmm. Yeah, it's like people are very, very enthusiastic about the racism equals uh, like racism plus power formulation. What is it? Um, off the the idea that racism isn't like preju- racism prejudice equals prejudice plus power. Plus power. Yeah. So that's the rationale behind saying that people of color can't be racist against white people, at least. Although that last corollary usually isn't added. It's just said that people of color can't be racist, which kind of ignores the fact that there's different kinds of people of color who could fully be racist against each other. But never mind. (laughs) Uh, So I don't want to get into my thoughts and feelings about that formulation, but even taking it at its face. I think that people say that and then they don't say, okay, but what about the power part? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the idea that it's possible to invest people with power. So the the constant ter- the focus is always on, okay, well, to get rid of racism, you have to get rid of the prejudice part. But there's a world in which you just don't no longer empower people to have that influence on in other people's lives. So in the same way that nobody cares if I say you know, honky, like the, it's not that people would stop saying the N word or whatever. It's that it would not matter anymore because I have money and I have political influence and I have the franchise and there's nothing that you can do anymore that actually affects my life. And to me, that's the goal. And that's why, as you may know, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm heavily invested in uh, a class critique (laughs) (gasps) uh, of racism. It's not because I don't think that you know, a, a strategy that focused exclusively on race alone, whatever that looks like. No one's ever really able to say what a, a purely racial plan to solve racism is that doesn't implicate class intersectionally. But I just feel like that's so ephemeral. And the idea that you're going to kind of walk around America and like hug racists or have like long soulful conversations with them until they come around is silly. And what I'm concerned with right now is how racism affects me and hurts me. And that is less to do with, you know, whatever home slices opinions are in Toledo and more to do about what's in my bank account. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, I agree that there's obviously a difference between uh, sort of uh, what we might call systemic racism or like Vanessa was saying, racism um, and personal racism, bigotry, um, and that the systemic racism or systemic prejudice as a whole has much more impact. For me, though, and this is perhaps naive. But for me, if we're talking about what the goal is, what our beautiful future looks like, um, what the utopia that we want to be shooting towards, and then planning our movement on the basis of how close we can get there, I feel like it's reasonable to say we should address systemic racism more powerfully and first because it's the thing that has the most material impact, but that my ideal future at least deals with as much as possible, both those forms of racism, that it has, it kind of breaks down, I, I think the solution, the sort of future that Pete was asking about, what does what the end game look like, breaks down into dealing with a couple of different problems. One is the material effects of prejudice. So close, things like closing the black-white wealth gap, things like gendered wages, things like access to healthcare, those sort of material concerns. The second thing is the feeling of hierarchy and prejudice. And that's a thing that has both, I think, systemic and personal elements. And then the the last thing that I think that kind of beautiful future would have, and, and this is maybe more of a socialist libertarian thing, is that I actually kind of agree with the conservative principle of like individual actualization. Like I think in our beautiful socialist future, I would want people to not be limited by any of the things that is, you know, any of the previous system systems that, that were disempowering them and be able to 
be whatever gender they want and have it not have any sort of impact. So I think I agree that we should address the systemic things first, but if, but for me, it's important to think what would the most ideal future look like so we can figure out how to get there. Because Martin Luther King's dream is not actually conservative. Conservatives steal it, right, and pretend mm. that it's conservative. But it, it, but the problem is not that you know it's uh, people should be judged should be judged on the content of the character. The problem is that they don't recognize what King was actually saying and the and the degree of, of his radicalism. But a world in which people are judged on the content of the character, great. For the listener, could you explain what that more radical dream is than being judged by the content of your character? Because I think. That's the one that most people no, know No, no, about. being content, judged by the content of your character is a good thing. King's dream of what that world would look like is not the pretending that race doesn't exist. Um, that, that's the point, is that, is that King wasn't saying... The way to get saying, the content of their character was right. not like, get rid of affirmative action at the University of Texas. Yeah, and it was not closing your <laughs> yes. eyes to the way the world looks like. Uh, and what he, inv- you know, and ignoring the fact that, the, yeah, the, ignoring the fact that people are not, in fact, judged by the content and their character, and that that right. that programs that endeavor to make it so that people are treated equally are not, in fact, racist programs in and of themselves, as the conservatives would argue. And so, as Vanessa said, discrimination itself is difficult to uh, isolate and measure. But I think just one thing, if we're thinking about trying to measure or or look at the world empirically and evaluate when we know we've made a lot of progress is currently if you treat if you if, if you treat black america as its own country for the purposes of statistics and you look and you compare black america to america black america's numbers on nearly everything are very different there's the wealth gap obviously um, there's you know, there there's uh, Incarceration, there, but there are also tons of things like uh, maternal mortality in Black America is so much higher than in White America. Black mothers just die in pregnancy at a much higher rate. So if we think about what some kind of racial justice or what a precondition of racial justice would be, like it's if you took all those things that um, all life outcomes and all of the things that uh, make people's lives good, and when you measured, uh, when you broke down countries as if each race was its own country, the numbers wouldn't vary. Um, There wouldn't be some huge difference that would come from being born in one, quote, racial country than than another. To stir stir the pot a bit. So that's one way to see the utopia. There is Michael Lind's proposal from The Next American Nation, the author Michael Lind, which is a totally different one. His racial promised land is there's enough interracial marriage that there's an American race. That is so naive. That's so gross. (laughs) I think that that's what many milquetoast conservatives might believe. The, the, The idea that race has to not exist anymore for people not to be racist is both incredibly pessimistic and ignores the fact that race and the observation of differences between groups has always been a kind of a political effort. And that just because people make themselves look similar to each other isn't going to stop the interest of whoever is in charge in creating divisions among groups in order to exercise some kind of power and control. So the onus has to be on... Sorry, go ahead, Aaron. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's, it's almost as if, for example, like colonial powers went into African countries and created fictional differences between people that look almost identical um, exactly. in order to create power differentials and hierarchies. But if those differences, exactly. as we're always saying, are socially constructed and, and, and pernicious, then don't 
isn't the aim to destroy racial categories because we see, see them as arbitrary? Well, well racial categories, taboo. not racial categories as power structures. I, th- I think that's sort of the thing. Like, for example, I think we had a discussion about about gender a little while ago, and the the I think gender is is an is an interesting place to have this discussion because I would want our future to be a place where there weren't necessarily incentives for me to perform any amount of masculinity but that there were still you know a bunch of different things that you could you could choose to perform or not that they just had no power value not that there's no gender anymore like not that we literally well that there is no gender there is no gender in the sense that that there's no no, no sex anymore i guess so no not that we so just to clarify all the time there is a (laughs) (laughs) so there is a good and redeemable concept of race is that i could imagine a world in which like the history for black people is so long and traumatic that like even if the power structures are gone i could see our descendants still wanting to like memorialize and like acknowledge what their ancestors have gone through and so maybe maybe like what i imagine for black people who aren't part jewish would be similar to what a lot of like uh, maybe left-leaning Jewish people in America experience now, like they're aware that they're I don't know, like they're they're less vulnerable to like the power the current power structures, but the their ancestors, traditions, and history is still very important to their identity. So maybe that's like a happy middle, you know, where like black people can finally get to a place where like oh things are so much better for us than they were for ancestors, but we're not not black, like we still. That is still like deeply a part of our identity, in part because of what our people went through. Yeah, I know. I think that's right. I think there is no club. I I frankly think there is no club in the future, because people are still going to have their cultural identity and they're going to want to come together to celebrate aspects of it. But just like I had uh, my brother's best friend when we were little kids was in a clogging club, which is like an Irish thing, um, because his parents like that was what was at school. He signed up as an after school activity and he did it. And the clogging club was diverse, even though it was Irish. You're going to have clubs that coalesce around things that are perceived to be like culturally black, but they're going to be more diverse than they are now because the club's purpose is going to be less about talking about feelings of um, ostracization and feeling of community where you have like kind of a quote unquote safe space from racism and more about like celebrating cultural signifiers that are appreciated much more broadly than just by the in-group. I feel differently about gender, though. Like, I guess I, ha- I have no, attach- no attachment to my gender. I could, to me, an ideal world would be a more gender-neutral word. So people could still use cultural and, like, physical signifiers, like wearing makeup and wearing heels, which was formerly associated mostly with, like, people who identify as women. Like, people with all sorts of anatomy could do whatever they want, but then... In the ways that matter, we would act more gender neutral. So you would get like like gender neutral names would become more popular, like gender neutral pronouns could become the default in like government speak or in corporate speak. So that, for instance, if like it'd be harder to like differentiate candidates for jobs based on their anatomy, like things like that. I find gender very strange. I, I've never <laughs> been able to identify 
with my gender at all. I mean, I don't consider myself a a genderless or a transgender, but I just don't, the concept just doesn't really mean anything to me. Like, I understand my own physical anatomy, but if you talk about the, you know, being, what is it like to be a a man or a, a, a male-identified person, I, I, it's just, I can't, I can't even answer the question because it's just something that doesn't enter my, enter my thinking or my life at all. But I think that's, but I, I, I think that's sort of what I was trying to get at, which is that there are personal elements that we also want to get rid of. We don't want to just get rid of sort of systemic elements because Nathan, what it sounds like you're expressing in which I also feel and it sounds like we're all sort of feeling in a sense is that gender, you know, you don't have a, that much attachment to your gender, but obviously your gender actually does come into your life a lot in that you have all the benefits of being perceived as a man in the world. And so there, there are elements to which I want all of us to, and I wish I, to go back to the branding discussion we had last time, I wish this was branded as a conservative thing almost because it's like a, it's an individual liberty kind of thing. Like I want to be free to like be whatever gender I want and to not be restricted also by any of the systemic you know, hierarchies that would restrict my, my ability to express whatever gender and to feel any kind of attachment. On that note, thank you everyone for uh, dealing with my pot stirring. Do not ascribe uh, the positions I brought in to me. Um, and uh, thank you everyone for talking about this uh, uh, thank you for talking about this uh, what do we actually want topic I feel like we're closer to the answer but like a distant horizon it seems to keep receding (laughs) we're going to take a break Uh, we'll see you at the next segment Lefty Shark Tank as an editorial meeting ran late into the evening on a recent Friday the 13th the editors of Current Affairs chose to dabble in something rather dangerous the dark arts. That's right, listeners. Your editors held a seance. And who did they summon up? Well, they were hoping for Richard Pryor. But due to a miscommunication with the spirit realm, they actually ended up with William F. Buckley. Yes, that William F. Buckley. Noted conservative defender of imperialism and an enemy of civil rights. The man Noam Chomsky called much respected, not by me. Here's a clip from that conversation. We apologize for the audio quality, as is typical for Buckley. When he feels attacked, he tries to monopolize the conversation. I, I would not tolerate the assertion that I am some kind of crypto-Nazi. How about a regular Nazi? Ah, <laughs> oh, well, you're terribly rude, bunch of children. But to return to the point, you can't seriously believe that the gains of Thatcherism and Reaganism will be undone by a mere ragtag band of... What did you call them? Democratic socialists. Yeah, we're pretty sure about that. Ah, but surely you admit uh, a priori that socialism, even a single dribble of it, will invariably lead to an uh, unstoppable flood of violence. Nah. Well, surely you understand that clearly socialism must act as a gateway drug for 
hum medicine. <laughs> Gateway drug? Now, now back to what you were saying earlier about marijuana having been legalized. Pete, can you just send this crypto Nazi well, back? Well, uh, okay, hold on just a second. Okay, I got this one, one minute. Here we go. Goodbye, Mr. Buckley. We're back with segment two, Lefty Shark Tank. On normal Shark Tank, an inspiring entrepreneur pitches a new business and the sharks ask hard questions and decide if they will support it. On Lefty Shark Tank, one of us pitches a relatively bizarre left-wing policy proposal and the rest of us ask hard questions and then decide if we support it. This week's contestant, our first ever special guest, Ian Samuel. Ian, welcome. Wow, special. Thank you. Special guest. I like that. Thanks for having me. You are an Indiana law professor, the host of the popular legal podcast, First Mondays, and you recently tussled with Tucker Carlson over the topic you are in the lefty shark tank today for, which is Supreme Court packing. Yeah. Ian Samuel, give us your pitch. All right. So here, basically, here's the pitch. Um, The number of justices on the Supreme Court is not fixed by the Constitution. It's nine right now. It's been other numbers like six, eight, and ten in the past. Uh, And it's always been adjusted for political reasons. So we added a tenth seat during the Civil War uh, because Abraham Lincoln wasn't confident that the court was going to sort of support some of his more aggressive things. When Johnson was president, the Congress reduced it to eight so he couldn't fill any of the vacancies. And then they bumped it up to nine after he wasn't president anymore. Uh, And the basic pitch, I think, for the present circumstances is, well, would you rather just lose for the next 25 or 30 years? Because we're sort of staring down the barrel of a very young, very conservative Supreme Court majority that really could conceivably, these five, if Kavanaugh is confirmed, serve together for literally 25 or 30 years. And especially if Justice Thomas retires uh, and is replaced by another conservative, I mean, that number could go even higher. So I feel like it's incumbent uh, on people on the left to have some idea of what to do other than just say like, you know, oh well, or we're gonna try to make the briefs really good because I don't think those are really realistic strategies. And the nice thing about court packing is you could add six justices, for example, to the Supreme Court, which is an ordinary piece of legislation. You don't have to amend the Constitution. You know, you don't have to do any of that stuff. You just pass a law and have somebody sign it. Uh, and it's, you know, pretty straightforward. And um, there's, you, you, especially in terms of like constitutional courts around the world, nine is actually rather small. So like a 15 member constitutional court would be, you know, well in line with world norms. Uh, And there's basically no reason not to do it because the answers tend to be along the lines of, oh, well, won't the Republicans do it then? And I'm like, yeah, if they they thought they could get away with court packing, they would do it now, right? Like if they have the political power to do it, they probably will. Uh, And there's nothing that the left is going to be able to do to stop that anyway. So that's the basic pitch. Pack the courts. Six justices would be good. I would take two, maybe four as a compromise. But that's the idea. Interesting. Sharks, your response. I'm generally all in, except what's keeping them from just packing the court more and then go uh, somebody us packing the court again, and then we've got 65 people on the Supreme Court? Yeah, so I, I guess there's sort of three answers I would have to that. The first is, that's not what's happened before. Right. For whatever reason, when we've adjusted the size of the courts before, it hasn't set off that kind of escalation. Um, So there's at least historical precedent that it wouldn't. Number two, I think the kind of real answer is 
what stops them from doing that is what always stops one's opponents from exercising political power in ways you don't like, which is you have to hold political power. And, you know, it's kind of like saying, well, if we pass, you know, Medicare for all, what's going to stop them from passing legislation that's like, you know, advances their worldview? And the answer is nothing. That's what power is. The ability well, to do stuff. The, the answer is that when people actually have access to these kind of universal programs, it turns out that within a few years, like almost instantly, they realize that it's awesome and they it becomes an entitlement, quote unquote, an entitlement, mm-hmm. and people don't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. I don't know that the same thing can be said if you're a conservative and they put a bunch of abortion loving, loving hippies on the court that you're not going to want your guy to get them out or at least replace them with a bunch of gun token toting real Americans at the first opportunity. Well, yeah, I think that's fair. And I guess the, the then the real answer is you better make sure whatever you do with a packed court uh, achieves wide popular consensus and people like it such that a proposal to go back to the bad old days would be very unpopular in the same way that a proposal to like repeal Medicare or Social Security would be politically unpopular. So, yeah, if you use a packed court to advance uh, you know, things that 80% of people don't want, or even that 55% of people don't want, or even 45%, then I think you will be in trouble. But I think that goes to, like, what should the substantive agenda be on the left uh, for, like, what to do with the courts? Um, but, I, you know, I know for sure that, you know, the, you know, the total annihilation of, like, you know, trade unionism, uh, et cetera, which is what I think will happen if we don't do this, uh, would be, like, extremely bad. So I'm intrigued by this proposal. Obviously, I've invested in a number of lefty proposals across my career as a lefty shark. <laughs> um, but, uh, Mike, I, I think I have a threshold question, which is it, it, the way that you've been pitching it so far is um, and, and here and, and on, on Carlson was, look, by the happenstance of political power, the right has had the opportunity to appoint a number of more justices and basically it's it's in it's in a sense only fair play that the left kind of balance out the court and really that the court has lost some kind of legitimacy by being so right wing and and actually court packing would increase the legitimacy of the court mm-hmm. and so i guess my question my threshold question is is that the position of of your court packing pitch or is it more the court has gone completely off the rails. People, for some reason, still are tied to a formalist view of the court rather than a realist view. And it would be really nice if they just realized that the court was blatantly political and this would help them do that. Well, I suppose it depends on the audience to whom you're talking, right? Because those positions in some sense converge, right? Like, in other words, the court, I do believe, has you know dramatically departed from what you know the broad sort of popular consensus in the country would support but i think that is because of the first thing that you said which is by the random happenstance of retirement and death and things like that um the republicans have been able to lose you know the popular vote in an enormous number of the recent presidential elections and yet have something like a death grip on the federal courts and that first thing has kind of created the second thing so i suppose my pitch would be you know, because I, I don't think that kind of process argument, although it's appealing to lawyers, and I do think it's like I believe in it. Uh, I don't think that actually moves people. Like, if I were c- going to try to convince, you know, just an ordinary human being listening to this, I think I would focus on the sort of substance of what the court has done. You know, focus on things like you, you know Citizens United and Janus and a lot of these other things that I don't think uh, re- represent you know remotely uh, any kind of you know popular consensus in the United States. And I would say, look, the courts are supposed to work for us, right? Not the other way around. We're supposed to have a court system that advances the kind of society that we want. And this is not that. Um, and so unless, you know, somebody has a better idea, you know, maybe we should add some justices. And after all, having five justices, 
justices on a 15-member court when you've lost as many presidential elections uh, in terms of the popular vote as the Republicans have is actually quite generous. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's really a compromise <laughs> I, proposal. Yeah, no, I'd like, to, I'd like to double down on that, and I think this is your strongest case. Let's just go over it. 1992, 1996, 2000, 2008, 2012, 2016, Dems won the popular vote. So there's only one election in the last seven where Republicans won the popular vote, and yet the court has moved rightward. It's outrageous. We shouldn't just focus on Merrick Garland. We should focus on the fact that the majority of this country are voting Democrats on national stage, and yet the country's power is moving rightward. I have a compromise, though, that I think might appease the norms police. What if you pair okay. the court packing with the 18-year term proposal that everyone's been, that a bunch of people have been pushing, so you re-normify the Supreme Court and just say every president, every term gets two Supreme Court justices, we're going to start by packing it to make it fair again, and then we're going to set up this fair system where it's tied to presidential elections? Yeah. I think that sounds fine to me. You down for that? Yeah, that sounds fine to me. I think that the entire concept of life tenure for these judges makes important national issues like turn on really random chance in a lot of circumstances. So like William Brennan retires in 1990 on incredibly short notice because of doctor's orders. He was getting too old and he had to sort of have a snap retirement. Um, That is not the stuff that American political life ought to be made out of, right? There's like no element of democratic control of that whatsoever. And I don't think that's appropriate. So yeah, I would say let's correct you know, as you say, renormify, pack the courts, and then I'm happy to sort of set in stone, you know, each president gets whatever number makes sense. With a 15-member court, you might have to have each president get three. I don't know how this sort of math would work out in terms of like uh, how, because the 18-year terms assumes a nine-member court. Uh, but whatever it is, I think that's a perfectly good idea. And I think it makes sense for lower federal court judges, too. There's no reason to have these people serving like aristocrats until death. I mean, that's that's an extremely weird idea when you really sit down and think about it. If it's just going to be popular will, though, then what's the... I guess other than the constitutional consideration, but like, what's the purpose of the 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 court as a whole? Like, it sounds like what would equally accomplish this is just leaving this, like, leaving all decisions to the legislator and just having a really impotent court. Yeah, I'm I'm not hostile to that. I, I'm not in love with the concept of judicial <laughs> review. Um, I'm not hostile to that either. So yeah, I'm so I, I think that would be that would be fine. Um, you know, in other words, I think that there are plenty of you know robust liberal democracies that don't have a system of judicial review, uh, or at least have, you know, a much more limited one, uh, and just sort of assign things to resolution by, you know, by the democratic consensus as expressed in legislatures. Now, I think in the particular circumstances of the United States in 2018, I do think that, like, there are problems with the democratic inputs that, you know, maybe you could believe that courts are better positioned to address um, things like, you know, gerrymandering, things like, you know, restriction of access to the franchise and a lot of levels. So like, you might have to put that house in order first, but uh, I wouldn't be, you know, I'm not, it's fine by me if we just decide that, you know, actually, um, these sort of like black robed, you know, aristocrats in our version of the House of Lords just aren't going to do that much anymore. That sounds okay to me. You think Marbury versus Madison was wrongly decided? I mean, <laughs> probably. I think that guy should have gotten his commission. I don't know. Seems a little unfair. <laughs> so, c- can I ask a practical political feasibility question? Uh, so, Franklin Roosevelt famously failed to pack the court, uh, and public opinion 
uh, as I understand it, was not overwhelmingly negative, but was negative. And it's considered by some to be a, a serious political misstep uh, on his part. Um, in part, uh, yeah, there's debate about, uh, about whether it, it worked as political pressure, but the plan is likely to be perceived and portrayed as the kind of thing dictators do, because it is the kind of thing that some dictators do. And so what I'd ask you is, there, is, is there not an h- extremely high risk that this would be politically po- politically catastrophic, that it would make the left look like they don't believe in an independent uh, judiciary, they just want to seize power, and it will uh, fail, uh, it will be seized on by the right, and it, you, you can't actually get it done without, because if Roosevelt couldn't get it done as the, at the height of his power, you can't get it done, but what you can do is make a lot of people very upset. So is this a politically practical thing to do? Yeah, I think it is, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's worth remembering that before it became kind of unnecessary because the court started issuing decisions more favorable to the New Deal, there was actually kind of consensus in Congress that although they didn't want to add as many justices as Roosevelt was suggesting, they were okay with adding some, right? And so there was at least some appetite for that, and it just proved to be unnecessary. I think the answer to the point about dictatorship and the sort of like, because I agree with you that it is Court packing is a technique that can be used, uh, like all political power, uh, to advance very bad things. But I think that the questions of legitimacy are a lot easier if you say, look, we're going to campaign on this. And if this is what people vote for and this is what they want, then these are their courts. And if they want them to function differently, um, that is their right. I mean, there's there's nothing that should be enshrined beyond popular control uh, when it comes to the structure of the government. So, uh, and, you know, Roosevelt didn't do that. It's not like he ran that, I think it would, you know, would have been the 1932 or 1936 campaign saying, Oh yeah, we're gonna you know we're gonna add six justices to the Supreme Court, and then so people felt like, well, maybe we should have had a say in this, which is why I think you should sort of say it in advance. Um, but yes, there, I mean, look, there's no question that it's going to rile people up, right? Like all you know, all bold proposals rile up uh, your enemies, but you know our enemies are already riled up. Uh, we can see, and so to have any sort of fighting chance, at least this is the kind of thing that would you know show a little bit of spine, right? Like I mean, it, you know. At the moment, in other words, I don't think that the major problem for the left in the United States is that uh, their vision is so aggressive that it's putting people off, right? I think quite to the contrary, that if, they were, you know, if there were some kind of vision for actually doing something exciting, uh, I think that that would net out to be a positive thing. But, you know, I think it's a fair, it's a fair point, but you got to run these risks. I hear that. But do you think that we can actually win an election? The threat of the Supreme Court alone is why a lot of mainstream Republicans came out and voted for Trump, even though they didn't like him. Now we're talking about rigging the Supreme Court (laughs) for the rest of eternity. Do you think a Democrat and particularly the kind we're likely to get in 2020 is going to be an inspire people to cut enough on the left to come out for her more than a court packing plan is going to inspire the uh, Trump aficionados to come out for him. Yeah. Well, I think that in, in part, in part, there's like a contingent question there, which is, Having at this point, like the, the people on the right who feel the most strongly about this are the people who feel the most strongly about abortion. And I think it depends very much what they get out of Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, right? So because if they get the rug pulled out from under them again, I think that they're, they're actually ready to be done with this, that, they, that their frustrations uh, with this kind of like, you know, Lucy pulling the football away over and over are going to boil over. Whereas if they do get what they want, uh, then I think you might see the dynamics actually on that issue sort of flip around where it would be 
be, you know, people on the left who are actually more ener- energized about the Supreme Court once they saw the practical effects um, of, you know, Roe and Casey being overturned. So, you know, I guess the answer to your question is, I don't know. Um, but it seems like no matter what we do, the right exists at a sort of perpetually heightened state of interest in the court anyway. I don't know how much more interested in it they could get. And so at least this would provide some at least chance to sort of excite the left in the same way, especially once they start start getting used to the like dog food that they're going to get from the court we're about to have. I mean, you know, a few years of this and people actually might be willing, you know, it might be quite popular to suggest maybe we should do something about this. Um, so, you know, I don't <laughs> I know. That. I don't think it has to be on the platform, at least at the primary stage. Maybe you mention it in passing once it's uh, once we're all like united for the national <laughs> the national election and people will get on board. I don't have many questions, but that's because I'm extremely biased. I'm fully on board, <laughs> all in. I do find comfort in structure, so I think I'm I'd be happy with some kind of cap on the total size of the court. A 65 member court sounds a little unwieldy to me. It just sounds like longer opinions that I'll never get to. Um, <laughs> I'm open. I'm really into capped terms, actually. Mm-hmm. Cap the opinions. Um, cap the length of opinions. <laughs> by cap everything. One page maximum. Uh, and I also like the idea of each president having um, a limited number of appointments. You know, and then to quote one of my favorite Twitter jokes, it's like if one of the people on the court dies, they die. You know, you don't get a third appointment. Yeah. It just is what it yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. I can make my peace with You know, that. Vanessa seems like she's swooping in with the investment, and, and I, th- I think I might want to be the shark that that uh, that takes this on, but perhaps we can partner over this. <laughs> Clearly, I watch a lot of Shark Tank. Um, <laughs> Nathan made me do it for an article. So I, I think my two questions are, why pack rather than limit? Or is there a possibility to sort of just reduce to like an eight member? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other question is, if... If packing succeeds, what's to prevent a kind of Andrew Jackson situation? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you've made your ruling now. Let me see you enforce it. So as to the first one, I, I think that just it's it's so much harder to remove justices. You'd have to impeach them, and that requires you know sort of super majorities in Congress. Um, and so as it's it's really just a completely practical consideration in the same way that like it's better than term limits uh, because it doesn't require constitutional amendment. So I think the practical effect is the same, and it's also just easier to you know if you want a you know a you know a ten to five majority, you know, to get that by reducing, you actually have to reduce quite a, you know, you'd have to probably impeach like two or three people. Uh, and that's just a lot of political willpower to go through. So that's, that's the main reason. Um, the second thing, you know, in terms of like, because I, th- I think I, I take this to sort of be like, all right, like, what happens when the constitutionality of the court packing legislation is like challenged in the Supreme Court? Uh, to which my answer is, well, you better confirm those six new justices real fast so they can vote on it. Um, and if your question is, well, are they going to be allowed to vote on that legislation? I would tell you, you better confirm them real fast so they can vote on the recusal motion too. Um, and so, you know, at a certain point, you know, it really does become, I mean, the court is not a politically powerful institution when it is sort of arrayed against the sort of like democratically accountable well, no. branches, right? There, there's a limit to how long they would be able to actually resist, you know, look, we've campaigned on and won and like enacted into law uh, an ordinary piece of legislation that changes the size of this court. What are you really going to do about it if we send these six people over there? I mean, like, you know, what are you going to hold the door shut? Like, get out of here. Um, so, um, 
you know, it might be a showdown, but it's also equally possible that the members of the current Supreme Court be like, look, that's fine, you know, whatever, don't love it, but what are we going to do about it? I mean, lawyers are not dispositionally brave people. So, you know, it's a little hard for me to imagine them like really standing up to a unified popular movement. This doesn't really seem like probably what's going to happen. Yes, yes, the the Ravenclaw profession. Yes, exactly. So it's time for the sharks to make their decisions. I'll go first. I buy this because, but I think it needs to be at a point where Congress is passing bold progressive legislation. I think a world where Congress passes Medicare for all and the court knocks it down is a world where the people are going to want the court to not knock it down and they'll do whatever it takes if it's attached to this legislative package. So if we're at that point, I'm in. I think you should go with me because I'm all in and I don't have any of those preconditions. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm really into the idea that you won't win elections unless you do things that are bold. I'm fully bought into the idea that the power of, the, of people like Ocasio-Cortez is not just in who they are and what they look like, but the fact that they're actually proposing things that people can get excited about. And this is very exciting to me, and I think it's probably inevitable that the Supreme Court is going to do something that's very, very unpleasant very, very soon, insofar as that it already hasn't. And I think Pete's caveats are kind of, um, I, I'm going to assume them. It's happening. <laughs> um, I'm all in, and I think you should go with me, because I don't even have brief concerns of getting the population behind you. <laughs> People don't know what's best for them, and you're the one who does. And so why not just do it? I'm also in, but I think that you should go uh, with me, because my... Uh, my investment would be the most permissive. I say a, a justice in every pot. Um, I, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, uh, my only limit would be on the amount of clerks that they can have so that that, that would limit the, the length of their opinions. Um, but I also do really like the ancillary benefit that it would make all lawyers have to finally admit that, that courts have a political element. Nathan? Oh, uh, so I'm, I'm, well, I'm out uh, but I sort of have the, the Pete sense in which I, I could I would eventually be in, but I don't think we're in the political moment where this is a, a good campaign issue. As Pete said, you know, at the moment where you have the New Deal situation in which you have all this popular legislation uh, that people are really behind, uh, then then you have the willpower to, to propose something like this. But at, at the moment when you when you don't have that, I I don't think the public is good. I think if the Democrats embrace this kind of thing, I mean, bold things are great. You have to run on bold things, but not all bold things successfully capture the public imagination. Uh, and until you've shown people, um, right now I think it looks anti-democratic. And I think you have to convince people that it is democratic, and you have to do that by having by showing that the court is an anti-democratic institution, rather than showing that the the left is the one who wants to overturn, who, who wants to uh, uh, destroy. And Merrick Garland the institution. didn't show us that. Uh, no, actually, I don't. No, think I don't think Merrick Garland showed anyone anything. So, Ian, that is four and a half sharks or so <laughs> in favor of you. Before you leave, just for left gossip, any interesting responses to your socialism will win comment at the end of the Tucker Carlson segment? No, we should. No, I'm not saying if somebody legitimized the court in the eyes of the public the by packing it with lefties from Harvard. Hey, okay, how that's about very this? cynical. I'm a reasonable That's more man. cynical than I am. How about we're this? Of, I'm sorry, we're totally uh, well, out of time. Yeah, well, give me one sentence. Okay. Uh, socialism will win. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Ian Samuel, thanks for revealing yourself. I appreciate it. 
Oh my God. You know what I learned from that is that people, they will find you. They will find you on the internet because it was like, I got like my Instagram started getting filled up with comments and people who were like, but first of all, all of whom were like, did you know about Venezuela? It is, it is like <laughs> with these people. They're like, you should have said never heard yeah, of it. Been like, yeah, Venezuela. I, what I really want to start doing is just being like, Venezuela is good. Like, you know, everything's going, everything's going great, and you're not going to convince me otherwise. Um, so, like, Instagram, a lot of Facebook messages. Um, my podcast was flooded with some one star reviews um, from people who do not think socialism mm-hmm. will win. Um, but I'm, I'm just sort of impressed that, like, because it's not, there's not like contact info on the TV, right? It's just like you look up the person's name and then you just like spend some time so you can write a, you know, a little message being like, shut up, you little shit. Socialism will never win. It also wasn't, it wasn't a normative statement. It was a prediction. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, look, I, I I regret it as much as you guys do, but, um, you know, it's just, it's my objective, uh, my objective view. And they, they do it because they know socialism will win. Right, exactly. (laughs) Thank you, Ian Samuel. We appreciate it. We got to go to break, but I hope you can come on again soon. Thanks for having me. Okay, everyone, I think I got the device working again. If, as you say, I am indeed contacting you from the spirit realm or some such absurdity. No, no, I refuse to believe this. The afterlife is irrational, and I only obey my rational self-interest. I cannot be summoned, as you say. And to belong to the dead, to live with other people, less gifted people in some public Ms. Rand, Ms. Rand, spiritual I, Ms. Rand, space. I'm so sorry. This was a mistake. I don't think this, we meant to... This is collectivism. This is altruism. This is evil. Well, you're probably going to... Oren, be kind. To believe that I, the founder of objectivism, the most intelligent person to ever walk this earth. To believe that I died and the world did not die with me. No, no. This is irrational. It is clear to me now. You, you do not exist. Only I exist. There, there. I have proved it. Using man's greatest faculty. The faculty of reason. I live and you do not. You will trouble me no more, you do ghosts of socialism. Ms. Rand, please, just stop there. I'm going to have to send you back. I destroyed socialism. I, with my philosophy, the greatest philosophy, with laissez-faire capitalism, I destroyed collectivism Okay, that's forever. enough. That's enough. How do you work this thing? Let me get this right here with the... That'll do it. I think I got it. Oh, there it is. Okay, I think... Okay, she's gone. Phew. We're back with our final segment, If Only, If Only. In the recurring segment, If Only, If Only, the current affairs panel shares wistfully what might have been if only something in the past had gone a different way. Today's topic, historical what-ifs. We will go around and share our favorite historical moment that we wish, oh wish, had gone another way. Who would like to go first? I'll happily go first. Yeah. Thank you, Nathan. So this is a moment uh, where the United States made a 
uh, the beginning of a series of shameful decisions that could very easily have gone the other way and could have made us uh, uh, could have made us a country that I feel is more true to our stated ideals. So uh, after World War II in 1945, the Vietnamese under uh, Ho Chi Minh uh, declared independence, and they and and France had been kicked out of Indochina uh, at, th- at that point. And uh, Ho, Chi, Ho Chi Minh said um, he, he released the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence. And the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence in 1945 is fascinating because he begins by, you know, Ho Chi Minh, our great enemy uh, during the Vietnam War, who's a communist, um, begins by quoting uh, Thomas Jefferson. And uh, and he begins by citing uh, the United States Declaration of Independence. Um, wow. Uh, all men are created equal is the beginning of his of his speech, and he talks about the uh, then he talks about the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and uh, all men are born free with equal rights. And he says, nevertheless, for more than eighty years, the French imperialists, abusing the standard of liberty, equality, and fraternity, have oppressed our fellow citizens and acted contrary to the ideals of humanity and justice. And Ho Chi Minh sent letters to Harry Truman. And that he asked them to recognize their newly independent nation. And the United States made a decision. And the United States decision, um, the, the Allies made a decision at the Potsdam Conference, but then Truman uh, continued this, uh, which was to support France in its reconquest of Indochina, because France wanted to retake what it saw as its rightful colonial possession. Harry Truman sided with the French, and he supported the French militarily, and it began this 30-year attempt to keep the Vietnamese, the keep Vietnam from going communist. But it was this pivotal moment at which Ho Chi Minh begged the United States uh, to be on their side and to understand that what they were fighting for in Vietnam was precisely what the Americans had fought for during their revolution and where the Americans, uh, due to their feelings <laughs> about communism, uh, rebuffed this and, and, and millions of people died over the next 30 years and we know the, the history of the Vietnam War. All this attempt to, this ultimately futile attempt uh, to keep communism out of Vietnam but it was this moment where, where Ho Chi Minh could have been an ally, uh, but the United States rejected it. But it does show that, that the U.S. has these... What, what's amazing at this moment is that the U.S. has these ide- these ideals and these words that Ho Chi Minh finds inspiring. And it's, it's not that the U.S. doesn't state ideals that are worth having. It's just that we're massive hypocrites and we don't actually follow them. Yeah. What yeah. a tragedy. Oh, my gosh. Mine's pretty short. I was a history of science major, which means that we study also the history of technologies. Before kind of guns, germs, and steel became required reading for everybody, we were indoctrinated in the um, broad historical effects of things like spurs, (laughs) (laughs) which apparently, you know, the invention of the spur enabled Europeans to ride horses for very, or Mongols rather, to ride like no, I think it was Europeans to ride horses for a really long time and uh, conquer very broad territories in a way that other people couldn't. Uh, so that's a bummer. <laughs> but I'm just going to go with uh, gunpowder. I kept going like back and back and back. Like, well, I wish this hadn't happened, but 
like a lot of uh, shitty stuff happened before that. <laughs> so um, I'm going to go with I just wish everyone had kind of stayed in their lane and not been able to go very far and not had such a huge um, uh, advantage over other kinds of groups. You know, I want to see Columbus um, arrive on America's shores and just have to go to hand to hand combat with a bunch of Native <laughs> Americans and see how that turns out. I'd watch that show. <laughs> like, instead of the alternate TV show where it's like, what if Nazis had won? It's like, what if there's no guns and everyone just has to make it on their own merit? Yeah. This is also my feeling about hunting. I'm not opposed to hunting. I'm opposed to hunting with guns. And if you do it with your bare hands, I, uh, I think it's a fair fight. Man versus deer. <laughs> mammal to mammal. I love that. Oren, Vanessa? I'll go. I imagine a world in which the architects of the financial crisis bailout of 2008. I'm sorry, this is so predictable. I imagine a world in which they were bolder and actually used that newfound spine to do three things differently. The first one authorized a whole lot more money to stimulate the economy. The second one, I wish, I think they had a chance to focus at least as much on protecting regular folks, um, the so-called consumers, as if it had focused on protecting them as much as it did protecting banks, then I think that things could have turned out a whole lot different for the hundreds of thousands of people who lost and continue to lose their homes to foreclosure and and have had to go through the sort of like related hardships that come with financial instability, um, like things that it could have done could have looked a lot more like direct handouts. It could have wiped out significant amounts of debt. Um, and it didn't do that. Instead, it created these like convoluted programs that gave banks and servicers many, many opportunities to not keep people from foreclosure. And the third thing it could have done was leverage the bailout money to obtain like major like victories specifically as it relates to like the size of our financial institutions. Um, so for instance, it could have conditioned receipt of the money on these mega conglomerates breaking up. Instead, it actually okayed some mergers um, as part of the bailout. So like one example is that Chase and Bear Stearns came together. Wells Fargo ate up Wachovia. Bank of America ate up Merrill Lynch. Yada, yada, yada. So all these places are now bigger than they were in 2008. And it could have actually placed limits on how the money could be used from the beginning, which it didn't do that. And because there weren't tangible rules, it means that like when executives pocketed some of the bailout money to give themselves bonus, like all the government could do was like wag their finger at like congressional hearings and sort of hope that like the shaming would be enough to make the executives like it's never enough give back the money. But you would think that if you're going to like pump $700 billion into the economy, you would attach some rules. And they actually didn't do that with the first wave of money that went out. And so that made it really hard for the government on the back end to go back and like do any kind of enforcement where it really shady shit happened. So that's my that's my moment. Ten years out, I finally was psychologically prepared to watch Too Big to Fail uh, last weekend. And it was very demoralizing. But if that movie is at all accurate, then it seemed not only that we had the political will, but that uh, an understanding that voters 
that Amer- that people who live in this country were very, very hostile um, to the idea of the bailout and the giveaway, and that that was motivating people, like the for- forcing bankers to come to the table and try to work it out and all of that. Like that, if the pressure was we can't give away free money to the banks from the public, then to say that the public somehow was going to be mad at us for like not giving the money to the banks. I mean, the, the choice not to bail Lehman out was because of the pressure from the public to say, nobody wants that. I will say, if listeners are interested in learning more about that, so yes, that Too Big to Fell movie is good. There's also Inside Job, which is narrated by Matt Damon. That's a great voice. But you can, I think you can find it for free on YouTube. It should be easy to find. There's also a book called Bailout by Neil Borofsky that is also very interesting. Hmm. I'll go next with something 100 years prior, which is one of my favorite historical facts uh, or historical things that have been lost is that in the 19th century, a lot of politicians accuse their opponents of supporting policies that will lead America to become a nation of employees. And they said, you know, if my opponent wins, we will become a nation of employees. And this is such a weird thing to read about because we we lost. We are a nation of employees. And what they meant is that we'll stop being a country of free labor, artisans, farmers, people who own their own businesses, people who are in control of their own time. And the story of how becoming a nation of employees to becoming like, oh, we will be employees, but let's have the left fight for like good wages and benefits is a total American tragedy where we stopped fighting for free labor. And it happened sometime in the 1910s and the 1920s with Samuel Gompers and the AFL, because the IWW and the Knights of Labor, which were two of the older, more radical left unions, gave way to the AFL-CIO, and uh, the AFL, which became the AFL-CIO, through Samuel Gompers, who was like a conservative unionist. And at some point, there were decisions that led to Samuel Gompers's way of, of seeing the left labor uh, project. He saw the left labor project as, we'll become employees, but we'll have strong unions and we'll get wages and benefits and time off. And that eventually like became the New Deal. But this older left of fighting for free labor, fighting for easy access to credit, fighting for a small business democracy, fighting for cooperative worker cooperatives and networks of worker cooperatives and artisans, that could have been a wonderful uh, alter. That that's a historic future, and uh, it's sad that we lost that. Pete, uh, what what in the twenty first century to you does not being a nation of employees look like? There, there was just this um, research that came out suggesting that uh, the left has overlooked a massive popular policy, which is employee co-determination, where it turns out that it's hugely popular when you ask people, do you think employees should have the right to sit on uh, corporate boards? Is that the sort of thing you're thinking about when you say not a nation yeah, of employees anymore? So, so, yeah, so everyone has to work somewhere, and if you have to have a big... Well, not everyone has to work somewhere because of UB. But if you're going to work, there's working in an organization. And if you're working in an organization doing a large enough thing, you resemble being an employee. But what they meant is the idea that it's like wage labor. You see yourself as trading your time to be subjugated by someone else for, for money. And there are people who work as technical employees, but they don't feel like that. Like doctors mostly don't feel like being employees. Professors don't feel like being employees. People who run their own business don't feel like being employees. It's slowly 
by piecemeal reforms, getting to a place where when you show up for work, you don't feel like an employee. I'm technically paid by current affairs a bit for doing this podcast, but I don't feel like an employee. And so I, I feel like I'm doing free labor. I feel like I made a deal with current affairs that like I'm an independent entity. Nathan's an independent entity. Everyone here is an independent entity, but I still feel like I'm free. And it's it's that idea. So People might feel like they're free, even if they technically have a boss, if they can fire their boss by vote, like employee co-determination. If you feel like you're getting uh, you know, stock from your company, you might feel more free. And so there are two versions of it. One is cooperatives, which are if you want to do large entities, like cooperatives are the way to do it. And there are different levels, like employee stock ownership is the lightest. You know, you vote for your boss is the biggest. No, no bosses. Oh, no bosses. Yeah, no bosses is the biggest. You know, there are these weird organizational systems where like people have rotating roles and stuff. And then there's also just a wider spread merchant artisan Etsyfication of the economy where just more people can the patreon economy where more people have freedom to like kind of run their own shop and kind of feel make deals with people as equals to to get by so that's the idea of free labor there's the book that i discovered this all from is democracy's discontent by michael sandel there's also a great book called free labor free soil free men about how lincoln was like Lincoln wrote most of his speeches about free labor, not about like any of the things we know Lincoln for. That's the idea. And he thought this, like, as many people know, like from a cursory Civil War knowledge, it's like a lot of the reason people came around to the North Side. It's not the best reason to come around to the North Side, but a lot of people came around because they thought the slave power would lead. It was it was Lincoln and the Republicans versus wage slavery in the North and chattel slavery in the South. Because in in the opposition, the positive project of that is free labor. That's so interesting. So it it sounds like Pete uh, wants to fire Nathan. Is what I got from that. That's what. I <laughs> It is funny, though, because it's like branding everyone as like an independent contractor, for example, is like a like a conservative project. And like, right, like uh, it's, Uber. it's funny that we lost that battle and it, it then it shifted so far the other way. It's, it's making me sad. Well, well, it's a totally cynical ploy based on something that people really desire. Those signs yeah. that say, be your own boss, join TaskRabbit or something. <laughs> it's yeah. like... Be your own boss is good. Everyone wants to be their own boss. You know, like, and this is kind of the producerist version of UBI. The consumerist version of UBI is don't work at all. The producerist version is be your own boss and do what you want. You know, but... what current affairs would be, I mean, obviously without our tyrant. So you you want to have the freedom of the No more takes. The freedom of the independent contractor with the rights of the employee. Uh, Yes, yes, Nathan, what you said. Yes. Who has left to go? Oren. Me, although I, I guess maybe I should go on strike and not not give my <laughs> You've my <convinced> moment. <laughs> free labor. Um, all right, mine is also is also on brand in that it comes from my one of my favorite legal cases. Um, but uh, so uh, one of my favorite uh, attorneys, historical attorneys, is um, Stoughton Lind, uh, famous labor attorney and member of the IWW, um, and anarchist attorney and law professor. And uh, one of the cases that he was involved in was the case in Youngstown, Ohio, where the steel mill there uh, laid off a bunch of workers as uh, steel production was was moving to um, was moving out of the Rust Belt. And so they laid off a bunch of workers um, and they were going to shut down the factory. 
and what uh, the union there, with the help of Lind and everything, did was they tried a bunch of different ways to stop this. They tried to make different deals with with the the corporation. They filed a legal case to stop the the corporation from from firing all the people and also from taking the the factory basically out of Youngstown. And then they also raised a bunch of money to buy the factory and run it as an employee-owned and operated steel factory um, from the Youngstown Steel Company. Uh, This did not work. Rather than sell the factory to the employees, um, the company decided actually that they would rather blow up the factory rather than sell it (laughs) to the employees. But the the union struggle there and the legal case were really interesting because they were all premised on the idea that the sort of deep Marxist idea that workers should own the means of production. And even the legal arguments that Lynn ended up making, some of them were centered around the property interests that workers develop when they work in a fa- factory and particularly the property interests that they develop when the town that they live in is dependent on the factory. So the the factory in this case, I think a good, I forget exactly what the percentage is, but a good percentage of the town surrounding the factory was employed by the factory. Um, and so Lynn brought all, forth all this evidence of what would happen if the factory was going to shut down, how the suicide rate would increase because of all the unemployment, you know, how wages would, would be diminished, how everyone um, would be unemployed and, and would, would starve. But a lot of the, the argument was like, look, people should own the, the means of production, uh, you know, and that capitalism is an inherently risky endeavor and there should be all these restrictions and i kind of my my wish is that one of the strategies either the union strategy or the the legal strategy had kind of gone the other way because i i don't only think that it would have set legal precedent about you know the property interest that can develop from from working in a place um but i also think it would have set a kind of community precedent that as factories were moving out of the rust belt that employees could you know stand up and fight back and that there wasn't going to be this tacit acquiescence to well if it's cheaper capital can just move elsewhere that instead there was going to be a principle that you know you've invested in a place and even if it's not the most cost effective thing that does create obligations and those obligations are largely based on what will happen to the lives of the people that depend on this place. I wish that that something something different had happened there. The thing is, that shouldn't be at all a radical notion. The the property rights theory of John Locke, which is cited as the kind of <laughs> the origin of, of the conservative property, the absolute property rights, is if you mix your labor with a thing, you develop a property right in the thing. Yep. That's how property rights come about, is that you work and you transform something and so if you work if at a fa- if the people of the town build the factory they develop some kind of it's not crazy to say they develop some kind of property interest in it that should be recognized under law but we have none of that <laughs> yeah no we no it's it's actually not it's not crazy at all uh the property theory and the and there's it, it's it does seem like it was this turning point as far as legal arguments on property theory and also on people have provoked proposed sorry to get to into legal weeds but people have proposed tort theories as well that you know capital mobility is a you know extremely dangerous activity that should have strict liability standards attached to it and that you shouldn't um be able to just move things out of one place um without having the the liability that we would you know attach to 
exploding dynamite or keeping wild animals somewhere. So I, I, I think there was this particular juncture and it was a bunch, it was a confluence of a bunch of different forces um, in the critical legal move. You know, Staunton Lind was there, uh, other property folks like uh, jo- Joseph Singer were there um, and they were all like trying, this was like the focal battle point and, uh, you know, we lost. And where did it die? Did it die at the Supreme Court or at the... No, like it died. Uh, it died in the circuit. No, 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 it went. It went up um, from the basic court. The the if anyone wants to read it, the the initial district court decision is actually really encouraging. But then um, it all goes to hell. Everyone, thank you so much for making my show notes uh, eighteen pages long. <laughs> I'm gonna have to do. We'll put everyone's links on the history of gunpowder, the financial crisis, Vietnam, free labor, and radical property and tort theories uh, in there. Thank you all for sharing these uh, historical what-ifs. Let us all say, if only, if only. Uh, This has been a great episode. Thank you, everyone. Brianna Joy Gray. Bye-bye. Vanessa A.B. Bye-bye. Oren Nimney. Bye, everyone. Nathan J. Robinson. Good night. I'm Pete Davis. Have a good one. Let's do footnotes. The racial wealth gap is huge. In 2016, the median wealth for non-retired black households 25 years old and older was less than one-tenth that of similarly situated white households. And the wealth gap still holds when you factor in education, marital status, age, and income. The median wealth for black households with a college degree equals about 70% of the median wealth for white households without a college degree. The gap is especially stark when it comes to health. The maternal death rate for black mothers is three to four times the rate of white mothers. The March on Washington, the site of the I Have a Dream speech, was officially titled The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Included in its 10 demands were a federal jobs guarantee, a raise in the minimum wage, and a broadening of the Fair Labor Standards Act. The most common gender-neutral baby names are Casey, Riley, Jesse, Jackie, Avery, Jamie, Peyton, Carrie, Jody, and Kendall. If the previous winner of the presidential election popular vote got to select a Supreme Court justice every two years, as suggested in the segment on this episode, the current Supreme Court would be balanced 7-2 to two in favor of Democrats. FDR's court packing plan wasn't that unpopular. According to Gallup polls conducted at the time, on average, 39% of Americans supported it and only 46% opposed it. Speaking of Franklin Roosevelt, he proposed to Stalin and Churchill that Vietnam should be phased into independence from French rule. The British vetoed the proposal, worrying it would inspire the Burmese to rise up against British rule. One of the reasons Matt Damon is always gung-ho to narrate lefty productions is because his neighbor and babysitter growing up was the radical historian Howard Zinn. That's footnotes. Special thanks to Light of Gold for writing the amusements for each episode. If you want to support us and get access to all of our bonus episodes over at the Bird Feed, become a patron at patreon.com slash current affairs. If you like the audio version of Current Affairs, you'll love the physical version, the beautiful print edition, which you can subscribe to at currentaffairs.org. Ian Samuel stuck around with Vanessa and Oren for a bit to talk more about the law. Stay tuned for a bonus episode of that interview. Here's an excerpt to tide you over. 
The first is, like, look, I mean, just by disposition, I'm always at search for a material explanation for all of people's behaviors. Like, fishermen worship sea gods, okay? So so why, why this? And I think especially if you're a law professor at a very elite law school, um, which, you know, Akhil Amar is, um, you have an interest in placing your students in clerkships with these people, and it wouldn't hurt if they remembered that you were on the team uh, back when they were nominated, especially if... As you're drifting off to sleep that night, you can tell yourself, well, he was going to get confirmed no matter what I did. So I didn't really make a difference, but this could, you know, this could help some of my students, and isn't that my responsibility? Um, you know, probably left unsaid to yourself is being the sort of professor with a reputation for having good uh, you know, relationships with Supreme Court justices increases your own stock in your institution, uh, can you know, make you kind of a little, little mini rock star in New Haven, whatever. Um, but like, I think that's, that's part of it, right? Which is just like, it's just good for business to have nice relationships with powerful people because um, of your position within the system. Okay? So that's, I think that's like part of the explanation. The other part of the explanation, I think, is, is kind of a little bit like the mirror image of what we were talking about before, which is it is satisfying to be able to say, you see how principled I am, unlike some other people I could name. I'm even saying that Brett Kavanaugh should be confirmed. Why? Because I am wisely committed uh, to the neutrality of uh, liberal values and to institutionalism. And unlike these, uh, you know, dirtbag leftists uh, congregating in their tents uh, over there, uh, I am upholding, uh, you know, the greatest values of the blah, 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 blah. It is very satisfying to be able to tell yourself that you're that kind of person uh, and to be able to sort of point to something and, and prove it. Um, and so people do it because it feels good. It feels good to, to think that like you are you are better than those people who blockaded, uh, you know, Judge Garland and, and all of these things. It's it's just satisfying, especially if you know you're a lawyer, which is a profession that is like really committed to these kinds of like institutional neutralities and the, and the sort of value of a fair procedure and all this stuff. It's like inculcated in you for decades that this is a thing that you should be able to be proud of doing. Um, and it's not, you know, by the way, that like although I've kind of described that with a you know kind of a snotty tone uh, as is uh, how I usually do, um, th- there are a lot of people who believe that really sincerely. Right, who are like, yeah, I do feel good saying that because I really believe that that's important for the world. Um, now, I, you know, I have disagreements with them substantively, but like, I do think that it's possible to sincerely believe that. So, I think some combination of those is kind of what's going on. Be on the lookout for that episode. Our theme music is "The Gherkin Train" by Joe Smith and the Spicy Pickles. This has been Current Affairs.